Good morning, church. It is so good to worship together. Again, at our church here, we cannot stress the importance of corporate worship. It's such a biblical mandate, it's such a biblical presence as we read through all of Scripture, but it's good not just to read about it, it's good to partake in it, is it not? Especially that last song, How Great Is Our God. So as the kids are dismissed, some of them are going to Sunday school. If you want a Bible, if you forgot your Bible, raise up your hand. we got some Bibles in the back. Sometimes you forget your Bible. If I forget my Bible, I'd grab one in the back also. We want to dig in the Word today. And it's interesting that together we can be in this room. We can be together and sing a song like that and just be kind of in awe of God. As much as we know who God is, we can be together in this comfortable room and sing a song, How Great Is Your God. But what happens when strife, turmoil, troubles come? Can you sing that song? So here's my question. What is your view of God in the midst of suffering? What is your view of God in the midst of pain? It's interesting, my kids view me differently at different times of their life. One of the things I always tell my children, we have different principles we kind of lay down as foundations, like don't do this, you know, you can do this. One thing that my dad always taught me, never play with fire. Never play with gasoline. So gasoline is one thing my dad said, never mess around with that. I never mess around with that. All the other things I play with when it comes to fire, but when it comes to gasoline, I don't mess around. I just don't do it. So that's one thing I've kind of passed. Never mess with gasoline. Another thing my dad taught me was never jump on a moving train. I mean, I don't know why. I kind of know why. I know the story. But that's one thing. One time there was a time, a bunch of my friends, there was a train that was going slow. And they're like, let's get on that thing. I just went, I can't do it. It was instilled within me. So one of the things I teach my kids is never wrap something around your neck. Especially my little girls. They run around, they wrap a scarf, and they grab the scarf and try to drag the other kid. Never wrap, you know, that makes, that makes sense, right? Never wrap something around your neck. I'll never forget the time. I was back home in Wisconsin. We were on this flat roof of our garage, and I was trying to patch up some stuff, and I had a bunch of extension cord up there. 100 feet of extension cord. And Autumn was up there with me. She knew not to get close to the edge. She was next to me. And I turned around. I was working on something. And she took this cord and kind of wrapped it around her neck. It was a huge, beautiful orange necklace. And somehow, the rest of the cord, the other 75 feet of it, started falling off the edge of the garage. And quickly, it got tight around her neck. And... She knew something was wrong, but she also probably recalled, don't wrap something around your neck. You could die. And she had the look of terror, dread, fear, like, I'm going to die right here. I don't know what death is, but she was only like about four or five years old, but she was in terror. And she looked at me, and she was like, she couldn't even scream. She was in just that gasp of, she was terrified. And in her eyes, her view of me was, save me. Quickly, I just grabbed her. It wasn't tight. I can guarantee she doesn't wrap stuff around her neck after that experience. 
But that's not always the way my kids view me. This happens with all of my kids somewhere between the ages of two and four. I don't know what it is, but whenever they get hurt, whenever they get a cut, a little nick, you know, somehow it seems like their hand is going to fall off and you can't even see any blood, but it's one of those painful like, ah, I'm going to die! You know, they get that painful thing. For some reason, when they get hurt because they're doing something typically they shouldn't be doing, that's usually why they run away, but when they get hurt, they hide it from me. I don't know what it is. They just kind of like, I'm okay. And you just see the tears welling up. No, I want mom. <laughs> I'm like, part of it is because as, as they're growing up, they realize that daddy has this medical bag. I was a medic for 13 years. So they kind of see some of the stuff I have. It's not scary stuff. It's just kind of, sometimes they'll play with it all, you know, with stethoscope and all this kind of stuff. And then, but they know that dad, if there's any medical issues, dad's the first one to go to. We're driving in a car, there's an accident, there's medical stuff, there's stuff going Dad jumps out, grabs his big bag, and there's blood everywhere, he knows what to do. So for some reason, between two and four, when they're hurt, they see me and they go, I'm not going to that guy. <laughs> and they hide. Even though I can't find any blood, it's just something that a kiss can take care of, but they want 13 band-aids. They have different views of me. Or, I have one daughter, whenever she works on a project, she will be frustrated and internally just get so, just, I can't figure out this puzzle, because 13 pieces are missing. Oh, I just can't, oh. But she will not come to me. And finally, after tears and frustration, then she'll be like, help me. So what is your view of God in the midst of pain and suffering? Are you like maybe some of my daughters at different times of your life? You've, you've appealed to him or you've run away. And today we're just going to look at a few verses. This is so great. I love this part of Scripture. It's just a few verses that most of the time people just kind of gloss over like, okay, there's some names, okay, great. But God is so active when at times we do not see him. We, we've been, we took two months and went through Genesis. God is a God of grace. Yes, He is. Even in the Old Testament, He doesn't change. He's a God of grace. He's a God of relationship. He's a God of restoration in the relationship, especially after Genesis 3. He's all about bringing His people to Himself. He chooses certain people. He makes a vow, a covenant. He's all active. Especially as we see through chapters 12 through 50, he deals with just a couple families, a lineage, where he's so active, so involved, even when it doesn't seem like he's around when there's pain and suffering. A boy gets thrown into a pit. A boy gets put into prison. And people try to use that to harm him, but as we saw in Genesis 50, God intended it for good to save many people. God is active. God is active now, 400 years of silence has gone by. Where's God? Holy, 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 though the darkness tried to hide thee. 400 years of... Where are you, God? Are you still there? Are you in the midst? So we turn to, as I said, the second chapter of the Bible. Exodus. 
So turn to Exodus chapter 1. The second chapter, because in so many ways, this is the part where God, after He says, you'll be my people, I will bless you. Now, I'm going to show you how it's going to happen. But in chapter 1 of Exodus, it's so important, and I've been, I've been encouraging you to read Exodus 1 and 2, Exodus 1 and 2, because the next, I said the next couple weeks we're going to be covering just Exodus 1 and 2. We see the need of deliverance. There's a need. Verses 11 through 14. I'm just going to read. Remember, this is my Exodus Bible, the Bible I'm using to study Exodus. Listen to some of the words that I've underlined from verses 11 through 14. Slave, oppress, forced, oppressed, dread, worked, ruthlessly, bitter, hard labor, hard labor, work, ruthlessly. Look at me. There is a need for a deliverer. The people have it. These words are very serious. Forced labor. But the need is also today. Here's a song of one of my bands I like to listen to. These guys don't call themselves a Christian band. They got some great music behind it. One guy is Christian. And you can tell in some of the lines that they write. Listen to this. It's called, Am I Ever Going to Change? I'm tired of being me. I don't like what I see. I'm not who I appear to be. So I start off every day, down on my knees I will pray for a change in any way. But as the day goes by, I live through another lie. If it's any wonder why, am I ever going to change? Will I always stay the same? If I say one thing, I do the other. It's the same old song, it goes on forever. Am I ever going to change? I'm the only one to blame. When I think I'm right, I wind up wrong. It's a futile fight gone on too long. Here is someone who is struggling, who is saying, I can't do it. I, I think I'm supposed to be someone, and then it just ends up, I keep following down the same path. I'm in bondage. I'm struggling. I can't get it. He needs deliverance. He's struggling. All around, I see people like that. Last week, I was in East Bremerton. Got a phone call, said someone needs some help. I met this homeless lady. She's living out of her car, desperate. Sat down, we had some food, and she just started sharing just the nastiness of sin and wickedness that has been surrounding her since a child. And now, because of all the struggles she had doing drugs, and just she has some children, and just they're off, and just around the guys that, that have just abused her and beat her. She just, what do I do? She's desperate. I have nowhere to go tonight. Uh, what am I going to do? I don't want to, I'm scared. It's all around us. But it's interesting when someone is offered a way for help. It's interesting how people reply. I even told this lady, I'll, I'll call my wife right now. If you need a place to stay tonight, you can come to my house. If you're that desperate, I don't want that. We are desperate. Here's another song. 
This is done by one of my favorite Christian bands. A renegade rides a runaway train to liberate, tear these bounds asunder. A fugitive running from a chain gang, comfort me, grant me absolution. Destitute, looking for protection, I want love, not physical asylum. A vagabond running from destruction, cover me while I seek defection. Running all my life, running all my days, running through the night, seems like forever. Take me now, I'm so tired, take me now, this time, forever. Rescue me. I'm going to run like a refugee. Rescue me. I believe you can rescue me. So what is your view of God in the midst of pain? In the midst of all that has gone before you right now? Let's pray. Father God, as we have the blessing to look into your word this morning, I pray that we would pull aside all the facades we had, have in our lives saying, oh, my life is good. I pray that we would seriously look at where we are at. And Father God, we cannot carry on this morning without the activity of your Holy Spirit working in our hearts. So Lord, we welcome you to move in our hearts in any and every way. Spirit, do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 1. We ended with verse 14. These next two verses are unbelievable. Seriously, if you just kind of read over this, you just kind of go, okay, here it is, all right, that's good. But it's amazing. Listen to this. What can stop the greatest man of power alive? Boy, that's a good question. We live in a world where we see great powers rise and fall. But what can stop the greatest king of this time? What can do it? Here's the answer. Two powerless slave women can stop the greatest man alive at that time. Why? We'll see why. Let's take a look at this. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. Wow! Verses 11 through 14 has been hard, labor, suffering, oppression. It went from there to genocide. It just got from bad to worse to wicked. I mean, this is horrible. It used to be bad, but now it's just, it's, you can't, no, this cannot be. Listen, whenever there's oppression, there's always a need for deliverance. This is what's great. Here is the mightiest man alive, possibly at this time. He's the king. He's the pharaoh of the land. He can get every Egyptian to obey his command, but we'll see he cannot get two ladies to bend. I love that. This is amazing. 
Why? Because of their view of God. And listen, church. The reason we're going through this Old Testament is to help realign your view of God. To correct it, possibly. Not just because you view God because that's the way my Sunday school taught me, or that's just the way it is. We want to understand God the way he presents himself. And all of this is pointing to the cross. All of this is pointing to that great remedy that we desperately need, found in Jesus alone. What's your view of God? I love that we have these two ladies. They will not bend. Two daughters of Israel will not bend to what the king says. And this is what's great. He has no name. Truly, if he was a great statesman, he would be named. If he was that great. But I love how Moses goes, he's unworthy even to be named. But these two ladies were to put their names down. And they'll be remembered forever. Ever. His name, we don't even know it. It's gone. I love that. He's not even there. The national leaders, he tries to plan and thwart two quiet, principled women of God. And I love that. I wrote this down. The Pharaoh's efforts leads to the pain and oppression of the Israelites, but the woman's fear, their faith, in God, leads to the success of his people. Let's read 15, 16, 7. Here it goes. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew wives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when the Hebrew women in childbirth, when you help the women, Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. I love that. They don't follow his commands. They trust the Lord. Listen to this. This shows that nothing can stop the promises of God. Nothing can stop it. You have the mightiest man alive who says, get rid of all the boys, it's done. Genocide. Listen, nothing can stop his plan. And secondly, he involves people. He allows, what a blessing, what a mystery, that he allows people to be a part of his plan. Wow! I love that. He allows people to be a part of his plan and completing it. In the midst of oppression, faith in God did not die out. In the midst of oppression, we see that faith in God does not die out. They refuse to take innocent lives of the life giver. They refuse to do what Pharaoh says. Listen to this. They do not give to Pharaoh what belongs to God. Please listen, people. Do not give to this world what belongs to God alone. Remember that. Do not give to this world what belongs to God alone. Stand out. Trust Him. Do, here's, here's a big one. Do not give worship to things that do not belong to that thing. It belongs to God. Remember, we're all about worship at this church. Not style, but object of worship. 
I find myself doing it many ways. Even with the word awesome. It's amazing how it's been the last 10, 15, 20 years that we use the word awesome for everything. That movie was awesome! Awesome is full of awe, full of wonder, full of just amazing. In so many ways, there's only one thing awesome, and that's God. A couple of us guys yesterday, we went to the shooting range with guns. Oh, my eyes were like, yeah, I, I love, yeah. Oh, that's an awesome gun. Oh, that's an awesome gun. Oh, no, I'll show you how an awesome gun. It's not the gun. It's me. Bang, bang. You know, the, what really is awesome? I got to redirect that. I shouldn't be. No. Do not give to this world what belongs to God. Let that be something that drives your life. And these women will not give to Pharaoh what belongs to God. They fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. Look at verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God. So what is your view of God in the midst of suffering? Because listen, you may understand Genesis. You may understand all those foundational things. God is present. He is active. He's a God of promise. He's a provider. He's he's trustworthy. Then 400 years of silence, where would you be? Some of you crack and break down after one day of silence. But in the midst of suffering, remember the preceding verses? Remember eleven fourteen? What's the word that's so key to all of this? Slave, oppress, force, oppress, dread, ruthlessly, all this. But what's in the middle of verse 12? The word multiply. God's promise is still there. It's multiplying. Even in the midst of these circumstances, God is active. And here's the phrase again. Do not let circumstances dictate how you worship. Instead, let your understanding of God, let worship dictate how you live in your circumstances. And that means we fear God. Look at verse 18. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? I love how witty they are. Sometimes I just don't have wit. The midwives answered, Pharaoh. Again, he has no name. Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. Again, here's that creation language from Genesis. God's promise is happening. It is there. Verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families or houses of their own. I love how the, the no-name Pharaoh, the no-name king, is all about making the, the Hebrew people build him houses, but God says, you too powerless, slaved, daughters of Israel, you're getting houses. I love how that's just there. Why? Because they feared God. So what does it mean to fear God? That's a great question. You know, we, we hear this phrase, you see it, in the, especially in Proverbs, you see it in, in different passages, fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does it mean to fear God? 
There's three aspects, and we're going to build upon this concept of fear because we saw that Pharaoh, he kind of dreaded, he kind of had this aspect of fear because the, the Hebrews were growing. He kind of had an aspect of fear, and we're going to see fear, especially in chapter 14 as we come up to it. Fear is an important thing in Scripture. I find this interesting that in Scripture we don't hear words like depression, clinically depressed, um, all these um, psychological terms, which some of them are fitting. The big thing we hear is fear. Fear. I'm not saying that you, you can't be depressed, but it's very possible that one of the core elements of that is fear. So what is they fear God? Three aspects. Number one is this. Then the word is fear. Yes, there is fear. There is dread. There's a book I'm reading. If you re- recall, there's three words I'm studying the rest of my life. Holy, glory, and worship. I'm going to study that until I'm like 70 years old, so I can just kind of go, oh, okay, now I don't understand it. But glory, holy, and worship. One book I'm reading, it's called The Idea of the Holy. Thick book. It's, it's just, you've got to have a dictionary next to you. It's just very deep. Translated from the German, it's just very intense. Here's some of the words the author, Otto, talks about. He says, the holy wrath and terror of his awful majesty. The holy terror of his awful, full of awe, majesty. When the creature realizes their creaturehood, their creatureness before the living God, you have terror. Does that make sense? There is an aspect of the fear of the Lord where you just go, whoa, I'm just a creature. I'm just small, and there is the creator. It's the consciousness of your creaturehood. An example, a great example is Isaiah chapter 6. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 6. A few years ago, as I was working on this concept of holiness and glory and worship, I kind of came to this passage and realized it's all right here. Wow. So I took a week and just studied it and translated it. And just, I was just like... And then I called my father-in-law and said, this passage is unbelievable. I always knew it was, but... And I said to him, I said, I feel so small when I read this passage, I'll never be able to preach it. And he chuckled, <laughs> the way Grant does. And he says, you better someday. And I went, whoa, okay. Look at this passage. The fear of the Lord is an aspect of fear. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, he was king for 50 years. He was king when you were born. He was king when you graduated high school. He was king when you got married. He was king when you had children. He was king when you got grandchildren. Everything's been good. The king has died. <gasps> In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, the real king, the king of all eternity. I saw the king seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. And they were calling, notice this, not to Isaiah, hey, wake up, buddy. They're calling to one another. 
They're not saying to the Lord, but they're saying to one another. Look at the words. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Look at the next verse. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts, the thresholds shook, and the temple was full of smoke. You know, I would expect that if God spoke, I am holy, holy, then everything shakes. But just two seraphs speak these words, and inanimate objects respond to that. Verse 5 is an aspect of the fear of the Lord. Woe is me. Woe is me. I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people who have unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord, the Almighty God. Woe! There's an aspect of dread and fear when it comes to the fear of the Lord. And here, go back to Exodus, we see that the women fear what God may do more than what Pharaoh would do. An aspect of the fear of God is realizing the consequences of disobedience. So the first part of the fear of the Lord is fear, dread. He is completely holy. I am completely other than that. But it's not just that. Sadly, some religions comprehend God like that, even in with, within Christianity. Some denominations, some high churches make it where it's so stuffy, where he's so holy, he's unapproachable, you can't get to him. And they miss out on the cross. He brought us to him. He is completely other, completely holy. Another aspect is this. Number two, reverence. Fear of the Lord is fear, but also reverence. Reverence. Not just dread, but, here it is, thought and comprehension of his greatness, of his faithfulness, and of his character. The more we walk through the Old Testament, the more he will reveal and show his character, and it's trustworthy, and it demands reverence, awe. It's amazing. He is awesome. There's reverence. I put this down. The awe of his holiness. When's the last time you had an awe of his holiness? When's the last time you opened up scripture and maybe read Isaiah 6 and you were just like, wow, he is that grand, that great. That's an aspect of the fear of the Lord. To have awe of his holiness. And in some ways, we Protestants miss a little bit out on that. Because we have gone sometimes to the one extreme where we make Jesus so accessible. He's on our t-shirts. He's my best friend. We have him all, you know, he's just, we've almost lowered him to the point where we forgot that he's a holy, reverent God. Does that make sense? We are to have reverence for God. And the third aspect of the fear of the Lord, first is faith. Sorry, the first is fear, reverence, and the last one is faith. 
faith, what, how does faith play, play into it? Go back to Genesis 22. Remember what Genesis 22 was about? Abraham, Isaac. We get right from the beginning of the first verse that God's testing Abraham. Not that I would ever test any of you. Abraham takes his son. God says, take your son, sacrifice him. Genesis 22, verse 12. He gets there, gets the altar, lays his son, takes the knife, pulls it up, ready to sacrifice his son. He was going to do it. Look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything on him. Now I know you fear God. Well, here's his word. Fear God. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham had, we talked about a couple weeks ago, extravagant worship. He gave everything to the Lord. In faith, he did this. Well, the word faith isn't there. It says, fear the Lord. But if you recall Hebrews, when we read through Hebrews, chapter 11, by faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Abraham did this. So an aspect of the fear of God is faith. Abraham had faith. He feared the Lord and did it. The fear of God motivates Abraham to sacrifice his son. The fear of God is equal to believing in God, having faith. It motivates right behavior. We have moral convictions and righteous actions. The problem with some of you is you have moral convictions, but you don't act upon that. You just sit there and do nothing about it. We have moral convictions, and we act upon that. We risk everything to do what is right. When is the last time you risked everything to do what is right? Do you have the fear of the Lord? Do you have that kind of faith to do it? Do you fear God more than you fear the consequences of what you're about to do? For me, it just recently, I had a struggle with something. I went back home to Wisconsin for the wedding. Flew there, and I was all excited because I thought, I'm going to get my license to hunt here because in Washington, on this side, you have the black-tailed deer, which are about this big, and you can only get one. Back in Wisconsin, I pay 20 bucks, get two tags, and then $2 after that every tag. And I can shoot, well, hopefully I can shoot four or five deer and uh, you know, somehow get that back here, and we could feed the family for a while. So I'm going to get a hunting license. I get there, I pull out the thing, and I realize the resident is 20 bucks. Non-resident, 160 bucks. Oh, Yeah. I'm Washington now, but I'm paying taxes. I have a house still in Wisconsin. I'm paying so much money, and I live in Wisconsin. I'm still in Wisconsin, so I read through the book as tight as I could. Because I'm like, I'm not going to... And I kind of found a little loophole where I thought, I've got my Wisconsin license. I've got my Hunter ID in Wisconsin. I, I'm, my house is in Wisconsin. I'm still paying Wisconsin. I have every right. I found the loophole. But then there was one little sentence that said, uh-uh-uh, for you tricky guys like Cody. I had to face 
Do I fear God? Will I be respectful of what He, of who He is? Or just pay the 20 bucks? I could show I could do it, and here I go hunting for 20 bucks. Will you risk everything to do what is right? Will you be honest, faithful, trustworthy, upright? That's the fear of the Lord. Living it out. And here I wrote this down. In the midst of circumstances, it is the mindset of doing what is most pleasing to God, no matter what the outcome is. That's the fear of the Lord. In the midst of your circumstances, joyful, bad, happy, hungry, full, in the midst of your circumstances, it's already having the mindset to do, I will do what is right before the Lord because I fear the Lord and trust Him. That's the fear of the Lord. Fear, reverence, and faith all put together in that. Having respect and reverence, which leads to right living in accordance with His requirements. To put this together, I have this little card here. Yes, I'm a guy that has cards around me. I carry things around. This was when I was in college. When I was in college, I put this phrase. I don't know where I got this. Maybe it was a combination of different things I studied in Scripture. Because the fear of the Lord was complicated to me. I didn't want to walk around like that first part where I just walk around trembling in fear like, okay, don't zap me, okay. Oh, you know, How do you have fear, dread, and awe with reverence and faith? So here's a simple definition I wrote down. A loving reverence for God. Listen to that. A loving reverence. Fear of God isn't like, oh, I'm stuck, I'm in trouble. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord. He's that big slave master. No, it's a loving reverence for God that includes submission to His will. I put a loving reverence for God that includes submission to His lordship and the commands of his word. That's the fear of the Lord. So here we have in this little section that you might cruise over because you can't pronounce their names. Okay, the boys are going to die. Let me just get to the part of Moses. But listen to this. I love in just these few verses we have this. God's plan, his promises will not fail even when someone says genocide, even when someone says get rid of the babies, God's plan will not be thwarted. It will not change. You cannot twist him. He will work it out. And he involves people, agents, two powerless daughters of Israel, slaves who will not bend to the Pharaoh but fear God and not the consequences of what Pharaoh would lay out on them. And because they feared God, through that, God continues to do his work. So again, what is your view of God in the midst of pain and suffering? Will you fear God with all those three elements? Not just one, not the first one, because some of you maybe come from a, a background of a church where you just fear God. You guys sit and like, oh, oh, oh. But it's the fear of his holiness and reverence to him. The fear of the Lord is, what I wrote down here again, a loving reverence to God. 
a loving reverence to God, which includes submission to his lordship, it's his way, not my way, and the commands of his word, his will. So we need to today rely upon him for victory. This chapter 1 of Exodus lays it out. There's a lot of pain and suffering. They need a deliverer. In the midst of your pain and suffering, trust the Lord. He's trustworthy, right? Remember the rope I used? He's trustworthy. You can trust him. Fear him. Worship him. And out of that, you will see him work Possibly even through you, because maybe you feel like a slave. Maybe you feel powerless. And I tell you what, church, we need to rise up, because there are many wicked things happening around in this world today. There are things happening in our government that are contra to what God has installed, especially when it comes to little babies, especially when it comes to marriages. It is time, and here's how the church rises. Listen to this, church. We don't rise up and just get our trumpets and bang our pots and pans and blow up things. No. I love this. The women did not use fists. They used the fear of God. They were quiet and did it. So we don't, church, rise up. Instead, we march on our knees. Amen? And I encourage you, pull this out again. Last week, we get these cards. Pray for people. Write people's names down. Monday is missions. Write some stuff down. Find out about the underground church. See what's happening in the world today. See what's happening in Africa, how it's exploding. Pray about getting a passport, because you're getting a passport to go to the Philippines with me soon, right? Okay? Let's go. Let's go to the Amazon jungle. They keep waiting for me to reply. Pastor Cody, bring you some of your people. Let's go to the jungle. Let's do it. Put your friends' names down. Ed and Rachel, Marcus, Donna, Heather, Troy, Ivy, you're all on here. Pray for people. The fear of the Lord in the midst of our circumstances is submission to His will, praying that God's will prevails over all things. It's not a passive like, oh, God's going to do it. It's praying that his will prevails over all things. And that's the fear of the Lord. And that's how our church will continue to move and shape our nation, amen, our county, our neighborhoods for the kingdom of God. In the midst of all this nastiness, have the fear of the Lord. Correct your vision of God, your view of God, Rely on Him. Because so many times your view of God is not right. Use this to shape it and understand that loving reverence that includes submission to His Lordship and the commands of His will. Let's pray.